Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Tennis Express. Please check them out this week by going to EssentialTennis.com slash Express. Well, thanks very much for joining me on today's episode of the show. My guest is going to be Dr. Patrick Cohn, a sports psychology expert, and he's got some great tips and, and help and advice to share with us as always about being better mentally tough on the tennis court. And I, I got the questions for today's show from Facebook fans of Essential Tennis you can be a fan of Essential Tennis by going to facebook.com slash Essential Tennis. And I, Dr. Cohn and I kind of put this episode together quickly, and I, I put a post out there the day before and asked for topic suggestions, and that's what I used was suggestions from Facebook. So if you want to kind of be on the inside track on stuff like that, Definitely uh, like Essential Tennis there on that page. You can also follow Essential Tennis at twitter.com slash Essential Tennis and YouTube. You can subscribe at youtube.com slash Essential Tennis. All right, let's go ahead and get down to business. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. My guest today on the podcast is sports psychology expert, Dr. Patrick Cohn. He's the host of another great tennis podcast, the Tennis Psychology Podcast. Dr. Cohn, welcome back to the podcast. Ian, thanks for having me on again. Yeah, you bet. You're definitely, I I didn't go through and count, but I was thinking the other night when you and I were were emailing about getting this episode together, I think you've got to be the the most reoccurring uh, guest now on, on the show. So congratulations on that. Well, great, great. My, uh, my, I know that my listeners love these these kinds of topics, and it's it's something that seems to be kind of universally uh, applicable. I guess it, it doesn't really matter your age or your you know ability level or experience level. You know these kind of topics are are something that are it's pretty universal for all athletes, right? Absolutely. If you're a 3.0 player, 4.0 player, you're a tour professional, you're still going to have some nerves and performance anxiety, some issues with trust and confidence at times. So it's definitely um, universal concepts that we can say apply beyond the sport arena as well. So tell us a little bit about what have you been, any new projects uh, recently? I know you've got a, a bunch of different websites about different sports and you work with a lot of different types of athletes. Anything new that you've been working on recently? Well, we're trying to get more guests on. the. Um, instead of me just answering questions from listeners, I'm trying to get some more guests on the Tennis Psychology Podcast cool. um, so we can get some different views similar to what you do every week and get um, experts on and talk about um, from my perspective, we talk more about the mental game and, and, and practice efficiency and those type of things. Sure. All right, cool. Well, I definitely recommend uh, those of you listening to, to this episode of my show here, definitely check out Dr. Cohn's uh, podcast. Good stuff and, of course, free. So that's uh, the, the price is right, <laughs> just like mine. 
so I asked my, my Facebook fans for some topic ideas the other day and got some, some good stuff back. We'll go through a couple of these here and looking forward to hearing your, your thoughts and opinions on how to best deal with these situations. So first up from, I believe it's Mesa, M-E-S-A, in Nashville, Tennessee, wrote and said, what should I think about on a monster point? I, tr- uh, I try to worry about my feet being quick so I stay loose, but sometimes I still tighten up. So what do you think, Dr. Cohn? How do you think she's defining monster points here? Are these important points of the match? I would assume so, yeah. So maybe down break point or you know, upset point or yeah, big turning points like that. The first thing I would ask her is, why are you defining that point as a monster point? Uh, why would it be any different? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because as soon as you start to label things in your mind, this is an important point. This is a monster point. This is a huge point. What do you think is going to happen? It sounds like she's going to get tight. <laughs> she's pro- most likely going to tighten up and change her approach. She might become more tentative in that scenario. Sure. Maybe even some players go more aggressive. I got to win this. I got to put away the point really quickly. So my my first recommendation would be stop trying to um, um, what we call label what points are or important games hmm. or really where you are in the match. And that that goes back to obviously just giving each point the same importance with the same strategy that you know is working for you. What about what what I and I'm sure everybody listening who's ever watched very much professional tennis on TV, it seems like the the announcers are always, I've heard this statement so many times, you know, this was a really close match, you know, the stats were just nose and nose, but so-and-so player, you know, Djokovic or whoever, just played the important points better. They, you know, they came up big on the, the important points. Um, how do we, and obviously that's from an announcer's standpoint, you know, they're not coaches usually or, you know, sports psychologists, obviously. So how do we kind of reconcile that? And, and do the pros or high-performance athletes, do they have more focus on important points or are they really trying to just be uh, treating every point the same? I think they're trying to treat every point the same. I mean, but what about all the points? What about all the non-important points that he won <laughs> right in the match? So uh, are those you know less important? So in order to get to an important point, you have to win some unimportant points, ah, I yeah, guess. Good point. Right? <laughs> so uh, they don't talk about all the other points that get to that important you know, winning those important points, whether it's add, add in or add out, you know. So... To me, you know, um, there, from my perspective, the media is now just pointing that out and causing players to focus more on the important points. But I will say, Ian, there are some people that are what we call gamers. You know, when the game's on the line, they perform really, really well. Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and uh, I've seen that, you know, if my daughter has a chance to win a, a match, she's very, very good in that situation. And it, she doesn't get anxious and she doesn't flip out. And, you know, so that's the, uh, her, her, her strength in that. Now, certainly she has other weaknesses in terms of the mental game, which we won't get into <laughs> today. But uh, um, you want an athlete to be able to raise the level of their game 
if you're down a set and you're down, you know, say five, four, then the athlete that can raise their game in that situation is, um, what we call a gamer. So, so if you're that type of an athlete, then you want every point to be an important point, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you're the type of athlete that, that starts to get a little tense and worried, doesn't know what to think about to stay loose on important points, that says everything, you know, that says that you're going to tighten up, you're going to try hard, you're going to maybe overthink that scenario when you shouldn't. And based on our other interviews, you know, I've, I've learned so much from you and the other mental toughness guests that I've had on the show. So is it fair to say then that this, this falls under the category of probably being too fixated on the outcome as opposed to the process of just playing a good solid point? Yep, I would totally agree on that. Absolutely. Great wrap up. Awesome. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've been trying to listen. I've been trying to listen to you, Dr. Cohn. Well, you know, we're going to get to one and two on iTunes sooner or later, right? For our podcast. Absolutely. I'll, I'll be two, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll see how it shakes out. I, I won't uh, make any promises <laughs> one way or the other. All right. So let's, um, let's move on to our next question here. We're going to talk about two other ones. The, the next one is from Jacob. Yeah, I don't have his location. But Jacob Broughton said, how do you maintain your composure if you find yourself ahead against a better player? Sounds similar to what we just wrapped up there. Um, I've got early leads against better players many times, only to see my lead crumble away. What do you think? Another common question that I see, and it falls under the category of comfort zones mm-hmm. and off, off, often expectations because comfort zones is based upon an expectation. So you go into a match against what you think is a better player, whether it's a, a ranking like in the junior ranks, someone's ranked or seated higher than you, or someone that just you haven't been able to beat, right? So the comfort zone is already set there. It's more of a discomfort zone in, the, in, in this case, right? So when, when you go in there, it's like, well, I'm playing a better player. And then all of a sudden, that person finds himself ahead against the better player. It's like it doesn't match with their expectations. Mm-hmm. Why am I beating this person that's better than me? Right. You know? So it's kind of like um, that. that's the classic, classic comfort zone. I, I see it all the time. Um, so um, um, then let me just talk a little bit about what happens often they get into what's called protect mode or they start to protect their lead instead of continue to play the way that got them into the lead in the first place. Absolutely, yeah. It it happens in golf, it happens in tennis, it happens in foot in football and hockey games all the time where a team will get a lead, they'll sit on the lead, the other team will get momentum, come back and beat them. Um so um I guess your next question would be, how do you deal with this, right? Sure. So when you've got the early lead, first of all, you can't look at it as I've got this early lead against a better player. You can't have any expectations about who's better and who isn't. You have to go out there and play to your strengths and obviously exploit uh, your opponent's weaknesses, right, Ian, from a a strategy point. Mm -hmm. You want to focus on your strategy for the match rather than who's a better player, who's a lesser player, who's winning and who isn't winning. You have to maintain that aggressive style of play or or whatever game plan that you had that got you into the lead in the first place. So I usually recommend 
most of the time is going from an uh, an offensive style of play to a defensive style of play. I'm using that very broadly sure. because I'm talking about from a mentality uh, uh, or a mindset as well as uh, a strategy too, right? So tip, you know, so nine times out of 10, that's going to be the situation. So that means you got to stay on offense and you got to continue to try to control points rather than go on defense. And that it's kind of a, a double whammy that I, I kind of describe this some, sometimes in that not only do you have the player with the lead kind of taking the foot off the proverbial gas, but when that player has the lead, especially when maybe it wasn't quote-unquote expected, that's typically when you're going to have the other player, the player who fell behind, really kind of ratchet things up and put in the most amount of focus and effort and you know try to come back, right? Because he or she realizes, oh, wow, I'm down in this match. And so they kind of rebuild their, their resolve and they're trying as hard as ever right as the player with the lead takes their foot off the gas. Yes, and I'm going to throw in another term, momentum. Sure, yeah. The opponent, your opponent gets the momentum, and momentum is everything in tennis. Absolutely. Yeah, it's big. So is this kind of, uh, it seems kind of similar, but with a different focus, I guess, as Mesa's question. Mesa was talking about monster points. So is Jacob kind of kind of mirroring that same attitude and saying, I have a lead against a, a monster opponent and kind of you were talking about expectations. Is it kind of the same thing, but opponent versus points? Yeah, I could see how you're drawing to that conclusion. But I, from a from a sports psychology perspective, I put one under more under the labeling and putting more importance on certain points, mm-hmm. which caused you to change your strategy as opposed to the other one is more of a comfort zone issue okay. related to how you see your opponent's skills versus your skills and and you know who's up in the match and who isn't so i guess they are a little bit similar because they're probably both based on expectations but one's a labeling issue to me and then the other one's a comfort zone issue so should we be Going, I mean, should we be heading into every match with more or less the same attitude, you know, regardless of who our opponent is? Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, you know, you know, kids want to look at the draws; they right. want to see who they're playing. <laughs> Parents, I think, encourage it too. Oh, look who you're playing in the first round! Right, the, right. If you get through the first round, you, the second round, you know, I'm obviously talking about junior tournaments where I'm most familiar with, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, I, I try to I try to encourage my daughter. Look, you know, it doesn't matter who you're playing. You go out and you play to your strengths. You try to play one shot at a time, and um, if you're outmatched, you you continue to work hard and you just try to play as many points as you can. If you're if you're if you're overmatched and and your um your opponent can't handle, then you try to end each point as quick as you can and play as aggressive as you can. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, no matter who you're playing, you still got to play to your strengths and to your opponent's weaknesses. Okay. All right. Great stuff. Thank you. And uh, we've got one more question to get to here. It comes to us from Jeannie, who, uh, really short and sweet here, simply said, how do you get someone out of your head? So, I, you know, we can kind of make a few assumptions here. She didn't say anything further than that, but I, I assume she means somebody who's maybe you know, annoying her, getting on her nerves, maybe doing something to distract her or, 
I guess annoy, <laughs> annoy is probably the best word to describe it. How can we deal with that, Dr. Cohn? Well, and I'll, I'll throw in another situation which we might want to talk about. How about there's a player that you're just as good as, mm-hmm. may, maybe better in some situations, right? But you, 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 you always lose badly to the player and that player's inside your head. Oh, okay, sure, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a so good one. That's a good one, yeah. I've, I've seen that too, right? So I'll take it in either direction that you want to go in. Um, ooh, well, since you threw that in there, I'm not uh, – Let's can we do just a little bit on each? Sure. Since I'm not sure, sure which one she means. Okay. So the first scenario is you're giving another person too much energy. It obviously depends where you're doing this. You know, So like if someone's annoying you um, in an adjacent court mm-hmm. – for example, and is getting inside your head that way, you're giving them too much energy. In other words, don't focus on that pink elephant in the room, <laughs> right? right? You're bringing your attention to it. So for me, it's all about refocusing on your task and what you have to do. I see it all the time in the junior ranks where they're looking around, you know, kids are screaming, you know, uh, other boys or girls are screaming, there's a tough match or there's a finals next to them and they're they're paying attention more to what's going on next to them. So you have to get athletes to be able to refocus because they're going to be get distracted at times. You can't be perfect with, with your focus. So if someone's in your head, you simply stop yourself. You say, that's not important. Refocus mm-hmm. on what I'm doing right now on this next point. Yeah, I think the the one phrase you just said that's not important. I think that's a really uh, that's a really powerful phrase, and that's something that all of us tennis players could probably stand to tell ourselves pretty often on the court when we're getting distracted. Yeah, as long as you know, as long as you lay out the difference between what's relevant to playing my match which we call performance cues and what's irrelevant to playing my match, which are just all the distractions that go through your head. You want to be able to lay those out for yourself. So you'll be in a better position to know, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about something that's unimportant. I'm thinking about my parents in the stands. I'm thinking about an adjacent court. I'm thinking about something I did before the match. Just be able to be in tune with what those distractions are. Sure. Sure. That's obviously very much easier said than done, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's the first step. That's absolutely the first step. And then, you know, being able to practice the refocusing skills in in your practice and then in the matches. Okay. And now what about the, the kind of nemesis opponents who just kind of seems to have your number? Well... I'll use a, I don't know if it, it relates, and you could give me some feedback, Ian, but there's a term that I use in motocross when I'm working with my motocross students. And I tell them, look, you know, because they worry about guys that are, you know, factory guys or, you know, guys that get all the press and stuff like that. And so I basically tell them, look, whoever's next to you is nameless and numberless. Mm-hmm. Don't, it goes back to labeling a little bit, sure, what yeah. we talked about in the first question. You have to look at the person across the net. Don't label them as a player that's got your number, that a player that's beaten you five times in a row. Sure. Right? Um, go into that match trying to look at it as it's just another player that you're playing and not label the fact that 
they know how to beat you. Because then you'll go into the match with that attitude that, uh, you know what, whatever I do, it's kind of a learned helplessness state. Whatever I do against this person, you know, they eventually are going to beat me anyways. Right. So very self-defeating type attitude. And we all know that that does not lead to uh, to peak performance, does it? No, no, that's not going to lead. <laughs> you you're, you step on the court basically, and you're already thinking about, uh, well, you know, even if I throw my best stuff at this person, you know, and play at my peak, it's probably not going to be good enough. Mm-hmm. And so, you think you're going to get the right level of focus and 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 intensity and and effort in that match? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> no. All right, good stuff. Well, um, any uh, final thoughts on that topic or any of the other ones before we wrap stuff up? No, I think we um, we we hammered out all those. How's your How's your daughter doing? She's um, uh, how old is she now? She's around eleven or so, twelve. No, well, she just turned thirteen, 13 this okay. summer, and she's she's doing very well. She's she's ahead of her goals so far, right. and so. I'm uh, gonna. We're gonna talk a little bit about her goals and see if she can uh, sneak into the top fifty by the end of December in the fourteens and under in Florida. Awesome. Well, I'm sure you really, really enjoy watching her compete, and I, I don't know to what extent you you personally work with her, but but I'm sure however much you do, that's really enjoyable for you as well. She doesn't let me work with yeah, her. Yeah, I wasn't sure. <laughs> I can't beat her anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's uh, that's a good and a bad thing, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, listen. Thanks very much for uh, for your time and and speaking with me and a- answering my audience's questions. Thank you very much. We uh, we all appreciate it. And everybody listening, please check out Doctor Cohen's podcast again. That's Tennis Psychology Podcast on iTunes or on his website as well. Is it Tennis Psychology Sports Psychology Psychology Tennis Okay. All right. Great. So, Dr. Cohen, thanks very much. Appreciate it. And uh, hopefully I'll be talking to you again soon. Thanks, Ian. Enjoyed it. All right. So that does it for episode number 193 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thank you very much for listening today, whenever you happen to be listening or wherever. That's one of the things that I personally love about podcasts is... I'm able to download the shows that I'm interested in. I I probably subscribe to, I don't know, probably about eight or ten different podcasts. So I I just love that I'm able to download those episodes, have them on my phone, which is where I have them automatically downloaded to, and then I can listen whenever whenever I want, whenever I have time. A lot of times it's when I'm walking my my daughter or taking her uh, to the park. She's going to be two uh, this coming February. Or I, that's really the number one time, I guess. Or, or if I have to drive somewhere, which I used to be when I always listened to my podcast episodes. I, I had a uh, 45 minutes to hour-long commute each way back when I was teaching full-time at uh, at a club. So I I lived on podcasts then because I hated radio because of just all of the ads and all that kind of stuff. So so I, I hope whenever you happen to listen, a lot, I know a lot of people listen when they're working out or just kind of doing chores around the house, maybe gardening or yard work or whatever, maybe going for your morning walk. I, I really hope that you enjoy taking the show with you and you've uh, found the, the advice helpful and you found it, the, the show helpful. 
So um, with that, I want to reply real quickly to two different comments and questions that were left for last week's episode, which was about how to slide on clay. There was a bunch of good comments. And by the way, if you want to leave any comments or questions for today's episode with Dr. Cohn, please do that by going to EssentialTennis.com slash podcast and click on episode number 193. Last week, 192, got two different comments about sliding on clay. Um, first of all, I, I'm not sure if it's Maxim or Maxim. It's M-A-X-I-M-E. But uh, that person <laughs> wrote and said, good podcast. I would add that you also need the right kind of shoes. They allow you to slide better and they don't ruin the court if it's a little bit humid. Yeah, that's actually a really, really good point. There's nothing worse for a clay court than wearing non-smooth-soled tennis shoes. And really, all tennis shoes are smooth-soled. If, if you're wearing a tennis-specific shoe, then then you'll be fine uh, playing on clay. But, but I'm going to go with uh, Maxim is totally right that it can really tear a court up if you're wearing like um, like cross trainers or you know just general athletic shoes. Not a good idea. Not only will you not be able to slide, and it's going to be dangerous for your ankle health, you know, mostly, but you're going to tear the court up. And so please don't do that. That's actually a really good point that I probably should have thought of last week. And then from HLK, HLK wrote and said. I like your discussion on sliding, and I'm inclined to try it, but I am quite, uh, even though I am quite agile and athletic for my age, and a very good singles and doubles player for my age, I'm 72 years old and a little reluctant to make such a shift. I plan to start gently with the sliding you suggest without a ball in play, and would you recommend sliding for a serious non-sliding clay court grandfather? <laughs> uh, good question, HLK. And first of all, yeah, totally agree. Start without a ball. Start without, as I did uh, during that episode, if I remember correctly, um, start without a ball and just experiment with it. And you'll find out real quickly if it's right for you or not. As I mentioned in the show, you have to be moving fast enough in the first place. And I'm not, you know, I'm not making any assumptions about you being fast enough or not, but I, I just need to reiterate that. Just the point that if you know if you give it a shot and you're just clearly not going to slide, you know, get up to top speed, you you drop that that lead foot, most likely your dominant foot forwards, and you go into that sliding position, and just nothing happens, and your feet just immediately grip, then you're just not moving fast enough, and so you just don't even need to worry about it, and you'll do just fine continuing to hit, probably uh, plant, and you know catch your balance and then recover back again without using the slide. And that's totally fine. Um, would I recommend sliding in general? Yeah. If you're moving fast enough to, to use it, then yeah, absolutely. Uh, not, not only is it more efficient, this is something I didn't talk about last week, but it's easier on the body. It is. Uh, and this is why typically older, more experienced tennis players prefer clay. It is easier on the body. It's so- it is softer. There's a reason why they call it soft courts. And one of the reason one of the main reasons for that is the the little bit of sliding below your feet even if you don't go into a big you know 6 foot slide you when your feet kind of shift across the clay below you it um it helps to eat up some of the shock that would have gone into your body and so if even if you just slide a little bit that's much less jarring on your body than if you were to plant and just stop your momentum 
and that and then your joints kind of absorb that shock of just stopping so just a little bit of a slide can really help ease kind of the pressure uh from your body and ease the pressure from your joints so um so yeah yeah give it a shot and uh and let me know how it goes uh though the, the older of a slider we can get out there the better and so i i hope it's you and uh, let me know how it goes hlk all right so and uh, everybody else that left comments and questions uh, for last week's show thank you always great to hear from those of you that listen it's great and please feel free to do the same for this week's episode number 193 uh, and that was with dr Cohn. so that does it for this week thank you very much for listening take care and good luck with your tennis 